Welcome back to the OBG Med Student Podcast. I'm Dr. Tanya Wright, and today we have a very special guest for you. This is Dr. Sarah Horvath. I'll let her introduce herself. Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm really excited to come and talk about spontaneous abortion with all the medical students. I am an obstetrician and gynecologist, and I did post-residency training in family planning. Awesome. Welcome. We're going to get started. Dr. Horvath, the way that we like to do this is I like to review a teaching case. The teaching case will be on spontaneous abortion. This is education topic number 16. You guys can follow along on the workbook for students that's located at www.apco.org backslash students. And more information can also be found in your Beckman and Ling textbook, the 8th edition, chapter 19. So this is a case of a 32-year-old G1 who presents with a positive urine pregnancy test at nine weeks, four days from the start of her last menstrual period. She reports five days of moderate painless vaginal bleeding and chills. Physical examination shows a temperature of 101.5, a pulse of 95 and a blood pressure of 95 over 60 with normal bowel sounds, no rebound, and she does report five out of 10 suprapubic tenderness. Her public exam shows moderate amount of blood in the vagina with a closed tender cervix and a tender uterus. No adnexal masses or tenderness are palpated. Lab data shows a serum beta HCG of 6,500 and ultrasound shows a gestational sac in the uterus with no fetus seen and the ovaries and tubes appear normal on the ultrasound. The first question that I have for you, Dr. Horvath, is what are the different types of spontaneous abortions? Great. So this is something that I think is always a little bit confusing, and it often warrants going back and looking at it a couple of times. So the first thing that we think about is a threatened abortion, and that's when a woman will have some bleeding in her first trimester. She may have a little bit of cramping, but overall the pregnancy is going to continue and ends up uh, usually becoming a, a live birth. Then you can move on to something called an incomplete abortion, and that's where there used to be a live intrauterine pregnancy that is no longer alive. And that woman has had some symptoms of bleeding, possibly also some cramping, but she has not completely passed the pregnancy. When you move on from that, you can get to an inevitable abortion, and that's when, again, demise has occurred, um, but it has, but the um, completion has not actually happened. And so we know that it's in process and that it's eventually going to pass, but that it has not yet passed. A complete abortion is one in which the woman has already passed the pregnancy. A missed abortion can refer to either an incomplete abortion or an inevitable abortion. And there's also um, some types of missed abortion where this is actually detected on ultrasound before a woman ever has any symptoms. So you may actually be giving her that diagnosis for the first time when she comes in to see you for an ultrasound. One subtype of missed abortion is called an anembryonic pregnancy or an old term a blighted ovum. And that's when you have a pregnancy that has a normal appearing gestational sac, but no actual embryo is growing within it. Finally, there are some subsets as well. So you can have something called a septic abortion, which is when any of the above occur, but there's an infectious process that's going along with it. And that can be quite dangerous for the mother. And then recurrent abortions are when uh, patients have 
miscarriages over and over and over again. That brings me to it, just a quick note on terminology. So spontaneous abortion is the term that you're gonna see in a lot of your uh, textbooks and in your literature. However, we know from studies with patients that that's not what they prefer to call this. They prefer the lay term of miscarriage or the newer term that you also will see in studies of early pregnancy loss or EPL. So based on our case, Dr. Horvath, what do you think is happening with this patient? Well, this patient was in her first trimester. She presents with vaginal bleeding and chills. She also has a fever of 101.5. Her pulse isn't quite above 100 yet, but it is 95, so it is approaching that. And her blood pressure is 95 over 60. She also has suprapubic tenderness and shows both cervical and uterine tenderness. So in this case, the thing that we're really worried about would be a septic abortion. And that's because of the fever, the tenderness, the hypotension, and then again, that approaching tachycardia. Why does this patient have a fever and tenderness and what needs to be done about it? So this fever is originating from the infected products of conception. These are non-viable at this point, as we've seen on the ultrasound. And this patient really needs immediate evacuation of her uterus and antibiotics in order to prevent worsening infection, sepsis, possible septic shock, and even death. Would medical management be an option for her? We will oftentimes hear about the use of medications such as Cytotec or Mesoprostol or Mifepristone. Would that be an option for a patient with a septic abortion? Not for this particular patient. Although those are great options for patients that are stable and not infected, any patient that has signs or symptoms of infection, especially those moving towards this uh, septic picture, really need to have their uterus evacuated with a procedure right away. So say this patient was six weeks pregnant and did not have a fever or tenderness, and her HCG was 700, for example, and there was an ultrasound that didn't show a gestational sac, what would be your differential diagnosis if she presented with a small amount of bleeding? So for a patient that has no signs of infection um, and has a beta HCG that's that low, that's that early in pregnancy, your differential is still wide. The most likely diagnosis is actually that this is just an early normal intrauterine pregnancy that we aren't seeing yet. However, because she's having some bleeding, this could be anything on that spectrum from a threatened abortion that's going to continue to an incomplete abortion or even an inevitable abortion. The thing that we really worry about, however, in these patients is that it's an ectopic pregnancy, meaning that that pregnancy is not actually inside the uterus, but maybe somewhere else, the fallopian tubes being most common or somewhere else in her pelvis Ectopic pregnancies only occur about 2.2% of the time. However, they are the leading cause of maternal death in the first trimester and therefore always have to be on your differential. How would you make the diagnosis for the patient that we presented? So the, the patient that's six weeks without a fever, a low HCG that's too low to detect anything on the ultrasound, um, and that just has a small amount of bleeding. How would you separate out your differential diagnosis? 
In a patient who's completely stable with these findings, you're gonna get serial beta HCG measurements every 48 hours. You expect those measurements to roughly double in a normal pregnancy. However, we've seen as little as a 53% rise actually end up in a normal pregnancy. But the test answer is always gonna be roughly doubling those 48 hours. Once you get that beta HCG above 1500 to 2000, which is considered our discriminatory zone, you can repeat your ultrasound. And at that point, if there is a viable intrauterine pregnancy, you should be able to see it. Now these patients really need to be given precautions about ectopic pregnancy, which is pain that doubles them over or doesn't respond to pain medications, Tylenol because you think that they might have an, a viable intrauterine pregnancy, um, it, bleeding that um, feels like a hemorrhage, um, or anything else that um, makes these patients just feel woozy, dizzy, faint, like they're going to pass out. Because an ectopic pregnancy can uh, cause internal bleeding, and that is definitely an emergency. So these patients need to have really good counseling, but otherwise you can just follow them every 48 hours with that blood measurement. What other blood tests should we order for patients with any type of abortion? You're going to want to get a blood type specifically for RH factor. Patients that have uh, RH negative are going to need Rogam, even in early pregnancy. Dr. Horvath, what are the causes of spontaneous abortion? The most common cause is a fetal chromosomal abnormality, and that's present in greater than 50%. But the truth is that we often don't know what causes any individual miscarriage to occur. Some of the other possible causes, as we've seen with this case, would be infection, sometimes uterine malformations, immunologic dysfunction, diabetes, thyroid disease, subclinical infection or trauma, as well as teratogenic or environmental exposures, such as cigarette smoking. And we talked a little bit about this before, but what are some of the additional treatment options for spontaneous abortion? Sure, so for these patients, again, that are unstable, hemorrhaging, or infected, you're always gonna wanna go straight to your procedural management. The preferred method uh, currently is manual vacuum aspiration, although the term that you'll hear is dilation and curatage. That actually refers to a slightly different um, procedure, but it's often still referred to that way, and that's something that you'll see in textbooks and on exams as well. There's also medical management if patients prefer. Traditionally, this is with prostaglandins alone, although in the last year and a half, we have also discovered that the addition of mifepristone can actually increase the success rates and decrease the time to complete expulsion for patients who want medical management. And finally, for a patient who doesn't want to have any intervention at all, as long as they're stable, not infected, and not hemorrhaging, they can pursue expectant management. We do know that 80% of these pregnancies will eventually pass on their own, but that's over an eight-week timeline. Some patients will switch modalities, so they might start out expectant and after two or three weeks decide that they want to start moving things forward. Thank you so very much for all this information. This has been immensely helpful. Uh, I hope that you guys really enjoyed this podcast. Um, don't forget to follow along with us, and we look forward to chatting a little bit more. 